I'm going to put an image on the screen right now. And I want you to ask yourself the question, do I recognize this guy? Here he is. You recognize this guy? His name is Christian Blumenfeld. Christian Blumenfeld. And I had never heard of the guy until about a week ago. Uh, he is a triathlete from the town of Bergen, Norway. And so he's from Bergen, Norway. That's a town where most of the year it's windy, raining, and about 50 degrees. And so this is a chilly place, but somehow this guy has been able there in his hometown in Norway to train to be an Olympic triathlete. And last weekend, opening weekend of the Tokyo Olympic Games, they held the men's triathlon. And so every participant in that triathlon had to first swim a mile and then ride their bike 25 miles and then polish it off with a 6.2 mile run to finish the triathlon. And so here he was, uh, this underdog, Christian Blumenfeld, and I happened to catch the last few minutes of the race. And so there he is about a mile from the finish line, and he's in the pack that's in front of that race. He's in the top three. And I look at this guy and I'm thinking to myself, there's no chance he can win. This guy is huffing and puffing. He is drenched in sweat. He looks like he's about to collapse. And I was convinced this guy was going to collapse. And I was right. He did collapse. But not before he crossed the finish line 11 seconds ahead of the second place runner. Christian Blumenfeld from this little town in Norway left everything out on the track and he collapsed once he crossed the finish line. After a few moments, he puked and he had to be helped to his feet by a couple of men and then they wheeled him off in a wheelchair. But he kept the faith and despite all odds, he finished the race. And so did Flora Duffy. You know who Flora Duffy is? She's a triathlete from Bermuda. Remember Bermuda, the little island in the Caribbean? Bermuda, Bahama, come on pretty mama. Yeah, you've heard of Bermuda. This little island of Bermuda has 65,000 citizens. So to put that number in perspective, that's about half the population of Victorville. <laughs> 65,000 citizens there in Bermuda. You could fit the entire population of Bermuda into Olympic Stadium. That's how small this nation is. But they sent two athletes to the games, the Olympic Games. She was one of them. And Flora Duffy somehow finished first place in the women's triathlon. She, just like Christian Blumenfeld, kept the faith and she finished the race on top. Huh. Well, this morning, we're going to begin this new message series that I'm calling Run the Race, based on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Over the past six months, we've been studying the greatest sermon of all time, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And as we've been studying that, we've seen so clear that, that Jesus didn't want us to just hear the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't want us to be impressed by the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't want us to be astounded by how wonderfully he taught. He taught us the Sermon on the Mount because he wanted us to live it out. 
And I believe that this series this month from Hebrews 12 is going to inspire us to live out the teachings of Jesus Christ better than ever before. Jesus has made it clear to us that as his followers, we are part of a heavenly invasion, penetrating the spiritual darkness here on earth with his light and bringing some of the best parts of heaven to our little corner of the world. And that's an amazing, inspiring mission that we've been given. But this month, God's word will make it clear that we can't carry out his mission in cruise control. Christians, we've got to step it up. We've got to roll up our sleeves and hustle a bit. The time is short. The stakes are high. So we've got to fight the good fight. And we've got to run this Jesus race with everything we've got. And we're going to run this Jesus race together. Amen? Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is how God's Word reads the 1984 version of the New International Version. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. May God bless us as we study and apply His Word to our lives today. Well, remind me. When we come across that word, therefore, in Scripture, what are we supposed to do? Most of you probably remember when we come across the word, therefore, we ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? So what do we see here at the top of verse 1 here in Hebrews chapter 12? We see that word, therefore. And so we've got to ask that question, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, I want you to remember that the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible were not original to the original writings. In fact, those chapter and verse divisions weren't added until about 1100 years after the New Testament was written. And they were added so we could quickly turn to uh, different parts of a book that is written. Sometimes you'll get a longer book in the Bible like Isaiah, 66 chapters and 150 Psalms. And so it's much easier to get to the same place quickly if we have chapters and verses. But those chapter and verse divisions are not inspired by God. And so this is one of those places where we tend to think because this begins a new chapter at the top of verse one, that this is a new thought that the writer of Hebrews is presenting. But it's really not a new thought at all. It's a continuation of what we've been taught in chapter 11. So what is the therefore, therefore? It's there because it's a continuation and an application of what we've been taught in chapter 11. Now, what is chapter 11? Oftentimes it's called the faith chapter. Sometimes it's called the hall of faith because chapter 11 of Hebrews is all about faith. It begins talking about faith in the very first verse in verse one by giving a definition of faith. It says in verse one of Hebrews 11. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
And then throughout the remainder of chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews is giving us example after example after example of Old Testament men and women who followed God in faith. Followers of God like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Isaac and David and and many others. He lists some 20 different specific followers of God in the Old Testament who followed God in faith. And so there's all these wonderful faith warriors brought to our attention in Hebrews chapter 11 as examples of one who did not see all that God had promised, but they in faith believed God's promises just the same. I love what it says Uh, In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. But before I share that with you, let me make this point. It's an important point. When those heroes of the faith reached the finish line of their lives, these men and women were still living by faith. That's a very important point made in chapter 11. They get to the end of their lives. They still hadn't seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. God's promises fulfilled completely. But they still took faith to their grave. They were living by faith, even when they took their final breath here on earth. And so let me give you a quick example. Verse 13 says it this way. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. It's one of the reasons these examples called out in chapter 11 are heroes of the faith. They didn't see it. They didn't hear it. They didn't embrace all that God had promised, but they took hold of it by faith just the same. What a remarkable thing to say. All of these great Old Testament heroes of the faith believed God's promises to be true, even though they never saw many of his biggest promises fulfilled during their lifetimes. Abraham, for example, believed God would keep his promise to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sands on the seashore, even though Abraham only lived to see perhaps a few dozen of his own grandchildren born. Isaac and Jacob believed God would keep his promises, even though Israel was a a piddly little nation at the point that they died. And in their own challenging situations, when it would have been so easy to, to jump ship and stop trusting God, Moses' parents kept the faith, and Moses kept the faith, and Rahab kept the faith, and Gideon, and, and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and all the prophets all kept the faith. They all walked by faith and not by sight. And look at how chapter 11 ends. In verses 39 and 40, we read, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, verse 39 is pretty easy to understand. All of these faith warriors of Hebrews 11 were applauded by God because they finished their race well, keeping the faith. They epitomized that great definition of faith in verse 1. They were sure of what they hoped for. They were certain of what they could not see. But what does verse 40 mean? 
39 is not so hard to understand, but verse 40 is a little harder to understand. It says God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What does that mean? Well, the best plan that God the Father has ever come up with, wouldn't you agree, was his plan to send Jesus to earth. Wouldn't you agree that's the the best plan that God has ever come up with and executed? He's had some amazing plans over the course of human history, but that was the best one. To send Jesus to pay the price for every sin of every single person who would receive him as Savior and Lord. That was God's greatest plan ever. So I take verse 40 to mean this. The Old Testament faith warriors never lived to see Jesus touch down on planet Earth. They were only able to anticipate his coming in faith. And their understanding of the coming Christ was very limited. They didn't know much about Jesus because he hadn't touched down yet. They were only working off the prophecies and the revelations God gave through those prophecies. And they certainly didn't know anything about the church. But in his great mercy, God plans something better for us. Amen. Try to wrap your mind around this. God planned to give you and me the privilege of knowing Jesus personally and being an active part of Jesus's church. Isn't that amazing? You may have heard that a thousand times said in much the same way. But I want you to think as if you've heard this for the first time. Try to wrap your minds around the marvel of it all. God has chosen us to know Jesus personally. The one that the Old Testament saints could only receive looking ahead in faith. Even though they weren't able to have that personal relationship with Jesus in the way that we can. They never experienced the church, but we get to be a part of the church. And catch this, together with the Old Testament saints... We are the church of the living God, the family of God who walk by faith and not by sight. The Old Testament saints teach us and inspire us to walk by faith. And we help to complete their mission on earth by doing just the thing that they had hoped we would do to walk by faith in obedience to Jesus Christ. Well, that takes us to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. On the heels of this great faith chapter, we read in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, when many Christians read this verse, they like to imagine the Old Testament saints up there in the bleachers in heaven looking down on us and cheering us on as we do our thing here on earth. They like to think that they're cheering us on. The message paraphrase paints this picture of verse 1. It paraphrases verse 1 this way. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on. It means we better get on with it, strip down, start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Now, there are certain parts of this paraphrase here that I think are just fantastic. I look at this and and say, wow, yeah, they were pioneers, those Old Testament faith warriors. They did blaze the way. They are veterans. Uh, They are, in a sense, hoping and, and praying that we would get on with it. 
That's true that we are supposed to start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins because sins pull us away and weigh us down from obedience to Christ. And so there's so much in this little paraphrase of verse one that I love, but there's something I don't care for too much. And it's right there in that second and third line. They are veterans cheering us on. Are those saints up there in heaven, those Old Testament saints, in a sense, sitting in the bleachers cheering us on? Not really. If they are, that's certainly not what this verse is saying. Sometimes we take things out of context because it's inspirational to think of those saints up there in heaven cheering us on. Sometimes an inspirational message gets us fired up, but we don't step back and ask ourselves the question, are we twisting somehow what God's Word is actually saying? I I think in this case, the message is twisting what it is saying. You see, it's not saying that the Old Testament faith warriors are witnesses of us. It's saying that they are witnesses to us. They are not cheerleaders. They are examples. You see the difference? It's not saying those Old Testament saints are up there in heaven witnessing us. They are witnessing to us. And some might ask, well, what's the big deal? What's the difference? Well, I think there is a big difference. Think about it. If the Old Testament saints are in the bleachers cheering us on, who is the center of attention? We are, right? That's what bleachers are for, to look down on the field and and put your focus on whoever's playing the game. So if they are cheering us on, then we are the center of attention. But if they are examples to us of having faith in God, even when you don't personally see with your own eyes or hear with your own ears, God's answers to your prayers and answers to his promises. If they are examples of faith, who is the center of attention? The one that their faith is grounded upon. God himself. You see, God is the focal point, not us. God is the focal point. We have to be careful to interpret Scripture accurately. And honestly, there are many pastors and teachers who preach very inspiring messages. But when you take a closer look at their teachings, you realize that their sermons are man-centered, not God-centered. Hebrews 12.1 is not a man-centered verse. It is a God-centered verse. And some might ask, Pastor Dane, how can you be so sure? I can be so sure because Hebrews chapter 1 is in the Bible. And from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.1 is a God-centered verse. Amen? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you go to the final verse of Revelation, the last verse in the Bible, it is a God-centered verse. And every verse in between, Genesis 1.1 and the final verse of Revelation 22, every verse in between is God-centered, not Man-centered. So I know without a doubt that Hebrews 12.1 is a God-centered verse. And if you're not quite so sure, all you need to do is look at the following two verses. Take another look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Oh, that's not the slide I want up there. <laughs> it actually, if you look at the next couple verses, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... And it goes on to say what? 
I'll open up to see it for myself here. It says what in verse 2? Look at it again in your Bibles. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's so clear there in the next two verses that Jesus Christ is the focus of Hebrews 12, verse 1. And so you could look at Hebrews 12, verse 1 this way. We'll put that slide back up for you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses for Christ, let us throw off everything that hinders us from trusting Christ and the sin that so easily keeps us from obeying Christ and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us by Christ. You see that Hebrews 12 verse 1 is all about Christ. Oh, so why do those of us who follow Christ Keep following Him. Why do we keep trusting God when our lives fall apart? Why do we persevere through hardship for God? Why do we endure pain and heartache for God? Why do we stay faithful to God when everyone around us couldn't care less about God? We do it all because of Christ. Amen? He trusted God. So, we trust God as well. He persevered through hardship for God. So we are going to persevere through hardship for God. He endured pain and heartache for God. So we are going to endure pain and heartache for God. He stayed faithful to God even when everyone around Him jumped ship. So we are going to be faithful and true to God as well. Jesus fought the good fight. And Jesus finished the race. And Jesus kept the faith. And He has called you and me to do the exact same thing as we follow Him. To fight the good fight of the faith. To keep that faith. And to finish the race. Our Christian faith, you see, is founded by Jesus. And it's centered on Jesus. And it's surrounded by Jesus. And it's running toward Jesus. Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. Well, over the past few weeks, I believe that God has been kind of lighting a a spiritual fire underneath me. And I believe that He's wanting over the next few weeks to light a spiritual fire underneath many of you as well. You see, over the years I've been told, Dane, you are a really hard worker. And I understand what people are saying when I hear them say that. There are certain areas of my life where I am a hard worker. One example is preparing these sermons each week for you. I don't slack off. I don't do a slop job on putting these sermons together. I spend a certain number of hours in God's Word, in commentaries, preparing and refining these messages so I don't give you a slop job online or in person. And so I do work hard in certain areas of my life. But can I be honest with you? There are other areas of my life where I am lazy. It's honest truth. There are certain areas of my life where I am lazy. And I think God has been revealing to me recently that there's no room for laziness in my life. If I'm serious about being on this narrow road, you see, I'm a little bit lazy in my marriage. I don't give it 100% like I should much of the time. I'm a little lazy as a father. As I parent my four daughters, 
I slack off at times and don't give them the attention and time and effort that they deserve for their Father to give them. And so I think God has been waking me up a little bit and lighting some spiritual fires underneath me. He has reminded me that there is no room for laziness on this narrow road to heaven that we've been talking about as we've finished the Sermon on the Mount series over the past few weeks. If I really want to be lazy, there's another road that I can be lazy on. Remember the wide road to destruction? The wide road is the lazy road. And so if I want to be lazy, I can just go over on the wide road, right? God gives me that option. If I want to be lazy, that's cool. I just need to switch roads. If you want to be lazy, that's cool. You just need to switch roads. But if you are bound and determined to stay on the narrow road to heaven, if, if I am bound and determined to stay on the narrow road to heaven, there's no room for laziness on that road. We've got to get with it. We've got to step it up. We've got to run this race. We've got to fight this good fight. We've got to run like we're in the Olympics and there is everything resting on how we run and how we fight and how we persevere in trials. We have to go because it's crunch time. It's game day. The race is underway and some of us are about to be left in the dust. There's no room for laziness on the narrow road to heaven. Look again at that last part of verse 1 in Hebrews 12. It doesn't say walk with perseverance the race marked out for us. It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say jog with perseverance the race marked out for us. It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Jesus is commanding us to run. Uh, not sit around like a bunch of lazy bums. Run. Not stroll down the narrow road like we've got all the time in the world. Run. Not jog for a little while so we can brag about how we got in a little spiritual cardio. Jesus says, run, people, run. Well, a couple weeks ago, I made a commitment to run. A couple weeks ago, I made the commitment to do something I've never done. To participate in an organized half marathon. Now, over the last year and a half, two years, I've run a couple half marathons on my own. But I've never run an organized one. And so I made this commitment a couple weeks ago to on September 11th run the marathon that's taking place in Huntington Beach. It's called the Surf City Half Marathon. They have a 5K, they might have a 10K, I don't remember. And they've got a half marathon and a marathon. And I'm signed up to run this half marathon, even though at this point in time, I'm not in good enough shape to run it. And so I have decided that I'm going to accomplish this goal. I'm, I'm running for charity, by the way. I'm running for the American Cancer Society, and I've committed to raise at least $500 for the American Cancer Society before race day on September 11th. So if you'd like to help me out with that, I'm raising $500 for that. Just reach out to me. I'd love for you to help. But in preparation for this, I realized that if I had to run the half marathon today, I am not ready. So I have to go into training. So I've set some goals for myself, physical goals during the month of August. I'm going to change the way that I eat. I'm going to largely cut out sweets in my diet in the month of August. Now, those of you who know me know I really have a sweet tooth. So this is not going to be easy. 
But I can't be eating so much ice cream and brownies if I'm preparing for this race. That's not going to cut it. I have decided that I'm going to buckle down and run at least 14 miles every week in preparation for this race. And I'm planning on losing five pounds because that will help me be a little bit leaner and meaner to run this race and not collapse before the finish line. And so I've I've set these physical goals for myself. And I believe as I've set these goals, I'm going to put it on the screen here for you. As I've lit a fire under myself to accomplish a good physical goal, I believe God has lit a fire under me to accomplish even better spiritual goals. That makes sense, doesn't it? I believe God's word is so powerful what it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is how it reads. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now look at those verses again. Is God's word saying that there is not value in physical training for physical goals? It's not saying that, isn't it? It's not saying that. It's reinforcing that physical goals and physical training has some value. He's just making the point that spiritual goals and spiritual training has even greater value. So, I believe that this is a clear takeaway from these verses. There is value in physical training to accomplish physical goals, especially when it leads to spiritual training to accomplish more important spiritual goals. You see, when I set these physical goals for myself a couple weeks ago, I felt like almost immediately God was lighting a spiritual fire underneath me to step it up with spiritual goals. There's something about aiming for a physical goal, something that's a little more tangible at times, uh, something that we can see the results, we can see the finish line. There's something about setting a physical goal where God is able to more easily inspire us to accomplish spiritual goals and carry out the spiritual training to get there. Bottom line, I believe God wants you to eliminate some physical laziness from your life this month. Not next month, this month. I believe He wants you to eliminate some physical laziness as a step toward eliminating spiritual laziness from your life in the month of August. That makes sense, doesn't it? So I have just shared with you a physical goal that I have set for myself to train for a half marathon. And I believe you can respond to this in a couple different ways. Response number one, you could say, hey, good for you, Dane. That's the lazy response. Good for you, Dane. I'll I'll pray for you about that. I hope it all goes okay." Or option number two. I call it the active response. You don't just say, uh, yippee, good for you, Dane. You've set a good goal. Good luck with that. You actually accept a challenge for yourself. Now, I'm not asking anyone to run a half marathon. That's a little bit nuts. But I am asking you to actively carry out some physical goal this month. To engage in some level of physical training. Because as you engage in physical training, And make some physical changes to the way that you live. 
in the pursuit of a physical goal. I do believe that God is going to light a fire under you to engage in a higher level of spiritual training to accomplish higher spiritual goals. That does make sense, right? Let me give you five possibilities. I'm not asking you to run a half marathon. Here are five possibilities to consider. Number one, lose five pounds in August. I'm doing it, and I really don't have a ton of weight to lose. But if I can do it, you can do it too. Number two, go on a one-mile walk every day. Maybe you'll choose that as your goal. You know what? I sit around and watch too much TV or have my phone out too much. I'm going to go on a one-mile walk every day. Third option, eliminate sodas or energy drinks from your diet. Some of you drink so many energy drinks, it's killing you. It's not good for your health. That's a very good physical goal. Eliminate those in the month of August. Number four, go to the gym three days a week. Some of you may have a gym membership and you go like once a month. You know, step it up. Go three times a week. How about number five? Go on a digital detox. This is probably my favorite on this list. Go on a digital detox, putting away your phone every evening and doing something active, ideally with your family, instead. Those are just five options. And you may come up with another physical goal of your own. That's perfectly fine. But come up with some physical challenge and some physical goal for yourself where you need to, beginning today, make some physical changes and enter some physical training to accomplish those goals. These are all good physical goals to set for yourself. And you can come up with your own. Oh, set a physical goal for yourself in August. And I believe God is going to light a fire under you to set some spiritual goals as well. We'll be talking about those more in the weeks to come. As we set these physical goals and run these physical races together, God will more importantly be challenging us to set spiritual goals and run our spiritual race together. So let's start by lighting a physical fire underneath ourselves. Light a physical fire underneath yourself and watch how God lights a fire under you to run your spiritual race better than ever before. Let's pray. God, I thank you for waking us up through these verses. God, so many of us have sat under the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and we have, in all honesty, been more like hearers than doers. Lord, we need to have some fires lit underneath us this month, even today. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would take this challenge seriously to set some physical goal. We're not asking them to climb Everest. We're not asking them to train for an Ironman triathlon. Lord, a simple stretching physical goal that we can accomplish with some hard work and perseverance. And I pray, Lord, that as we step it up physically, Lord, that you would speak to our minds and hearts and reveal to us how we can step it up in an even more important way. How we can step it up spiritually for the kingdom of God and run this race for Jesus Christ like our life depended on it. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to run on this narrow road better than ever before and fight this good fight on the narrow road better than ever before and keep the faith on this narrow road better than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there's so much I'd love to share with you from these three verses and really all the other verses in the New Testament that challenge us 
to step up and fight this fight and run this race and keep the faith. And, and I've been spending a lot of time over the last, oh, 24, 36 hours diving into what God's word says about these things in the New Testament. And I've only really been able to scratch the surface today. So stick with us every Sunday this month as we continue to unpack these wonderful three verses at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. I encourage you beginning today to set that physical goal and carry out that physical goal with some strict training. God will help you and we'll keep each other accountable in the upcoming weeks. I'd love to hear from you and hear that goal that you've set. You can shoot me an email, give me a call at the office. You reach out and let me know how I can help you carry out those goals that God has laid on your heart today. And if you have never made a decision for Jesus Christ, I encourage you to make that first time decision today. You go to him remembering those ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need a savior. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and is your only hope of being forgiven and making it to heaven. And C, choose to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord beginning today. If you've made that decision, reach out to one of us. Our names and phone numbers are on the screen below. Let us know if we can pray for you today or share with you more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And please reach out to us and let us know you've made that decision so we can set up a time for you to be baptized as soon as possible, letting God and the angels and any other person that sees it know that you are serious about following Jesus Christ. Your old life is buried and your new life is raised to follow Jesus Christ with everything you've got. Reach out to us if we can pray for you or help you today in any way. God bless you, church. I look forward to hearing from you and being with you together in this great race of the faith, this great race as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God bless you, church. We'll see you next week.